Good morning. Today we're concluding our series on 1 Peter. And ironically, my title is Hope for How It All Ends. Peter had been writing to Christians he described as exiles. That's how he started the letter, speaking to exiles. These are spiritual exiles. People who felt out of place on this earth because they were followers of Christ. Many of you have come from faraway lands. You know what it's like to experience the hardships of feeling out of place in a culture because this is a culture you're not familiar with and don't fit into right away. Well, there's a lot of challenges you can go through. I, I, was, I lived in another culture for about a year back in my 20s. I went to Sudan. I lived in a desert village for about, oh, about a year. Uh, it was pretty extreme. Uh, I, I lived in a mud hut, the dirt floor, a thatch roof, the whole ball of wax. Uh, the temperature was typically above 40 degrees Celsius or 104 Fahrenheit, and that was in the shade. And there was no shade. And if you think that the hut is a shade, it's not a shade, because that, those mud walls would actually collect the heat and, be, and radiate it. Inside the, if you went inside one of the mud huts, it was even hotter than outdoors, even though it was shade. So it was no point putting a thermometer indoors. And if you put one outdoors, you could see what happens. It goes right up to the very top and gets stuck there at 130 degrees. That is, unless a sandstorm blew in. Then you had a little bit of shade. When the sandstorms blew in, they came in like mountains of dust. And that wasn't rare in the desert. Our diet consisted of meat beans and bread and meat beans and bread and meat beans and bread and until my weight dropped to about 135 pounds by about the ninth month that I was there after 9 months I was I was feeling pretty weak uh, my journal entry on September 25th 1987 states as I often have this month I felt really weak and tired today I didn't want to exert too much energy. I mean, when I say tired, I mean standing up is a real effort, let alone walking to the kitchen 30 yards away. I'm out of breath if I walk across the compound. Work is another thing altogether. There were no exaggerations in that description. I remember one point I had to comb my hair because I had just gotten up and I needed to brush my hair. And I remember thinking to myself, do I really have to lift my hand? It was the, the, the energy levels had plummeted. And that was month nine for me in that little um, desert village journal entry. And that whole time, I was living in a Muslim country, a desert village, and all of it was a challenge, both physically, logistically, relationally, culturally, spiritually, you name it. It was a challenge to me. And then on October 1st, I got this timely letter. We didn't get mail often. They came by truck uh, across the desert. They, you know, most letters you received had been written a month earlier. We didn't have email in those days to, to, talk, to talk to one another. Um, so hard mail was it. And I got this letter from a friend of mine who was doing a similar kind of community development work in Haiti. And he knew me. He'd seen one of my previous prayer letters and knew I was struggling. And he sent me this letter, and I received it just less than a week after that journal entry. This is, what, this is a portion of the letter. 
Several years ago, Simon and Garfunkel wrote about a poor boy who went to New York on a dream and fell victim to the harsh life of the city. Penniless, with only strangers as friends, he spent his days laying low, seeking out the poorer quarters where the ragged people go, looking for the places they would know. Here's a young kid, dirty-faced and worn-out clothes, looking for work and finding none. He trudges the sidewalks and battles the cold and dreams of going somewhere where the New York winters aren't bleeding me, leading me home. He entertains thoughts of quitting, going home, giving up, something he never thought he would do. But just when he picks up the towel to throw it into the ring, he encounters a boxer. In the clearing stands a boxer and a fighter by his trade, and he carries a a reminder of every blow that laid him down or cut him till he cried out in his anger and his shame, I am leaving, I am leaving. But the fighter still remains. But the fighter still remains. Hang in there. Finish and finish well. Stick to it until it's done. Don't stop until you cross the finish line. I want to encourage you to remain and to remain well. I think of Jesus' determination on the cross. He didn't quit. I'm sure that he was tempted to, or to do less than that which God called him to. It is finished. A triumphant cry. A cry of completion. A cry of victory. A cry of fulfillment. Yes, even a cry of relief. The fighter remained. And thank God. God he did. Thank God he endured. Are you discouraged? Hang in there. Are you worry with, worry, weary with doing good? Do just a little more. Roll up your sleeves and go at it again. A finisher is not one with no wounds or weariness. Quite to the contrary. He is like the boxer, scarred and bloody. Remain to the end. Let's endure. Remain to the end. Let's endure. Let's pray. Father, we hear words like these and we know we can't endure without your help. We can't keep on pressing on and moving forward without your help. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace we need to carry on in this world, a world full of trials, a world full of difficulties. And would you speak to us from this passage in a way that helps us to press on. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's read how Peter ended his letter, shall we? He's talking to the exiles of the dispersion, which he mentioned at the beginning. And he's speaking of hope for how it all ends. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. It'll appear on the screen behind me. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all you who are in Christ. I'm not going to refer to that command at the end at the end when we get to the application. I'll just leave that up to you if you're wanna, you know, with your spouse or something. But we'll just leave it at that. All right. I've just read the conclusion of the book of 1 Peter. Throughout this letter, Peter spoke of hope. I don't know if you caught the themes of the titles of all the sermons that we've been preaching throughout the series, but the word hope appeared in almost all of the titles. Peter was all about hope in this passage because he was writing to people who were suffering in significant ways. And then he's getting to the conclusion now. He's been talking about all these ways in which to hope, and then he says the word therefore, or in some translations, so which in Greek is the same word they use for therefore. And what do we do when we see the word therefore? We ask, why is it therefore? Exactly. We look to see what it's there for. So what thoughts is Peter trying to connect? Now, there's a theme that came out in this passage I just read. There's a theme that Peter kept repeating. I wonder if you caught it. Let's look at a few verses. Chapter 5, verse 1, Peter wrote about being a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Then in verse 4, he says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive glory. He's talking about the future here. Then in verse 10, Peter wrote that after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, will strengthen you and confirm you, etc. Again, he's looking ahead. He's looking forward. Then in verse 11, Peter wrote to him, be the dominion forever and ever and ever and ever. He's, he's got the future in mind. And he's basically focusing on having hope for how it all ends. How many of you are going through something and you don't know how it's going to end? Well, there's hope for how it all ends. Because for those who are in Christ... We have a Savior who's looking out for us, who's looking after us like, like a shepherd, like Peter calls him, the chief shepherd. Amen. Thank you, Lord. So, he starts by addressing elders. Should I just have a little, little talk with my f- fellow elders and just you know, exhort them in this and just leave you guys out of it because it doesn't apply to you? I don't think so. I think... It's, this, is, this is relevant to all of us, that, that even though he's speaking to fellow elders, and then later he speaks to the younger people, and then later he speaks to the, all of you, it's even the part to do with the elders is relevant to all of us. Because quite honestly, I believe the principles he shares for the elders in this passage apply to anybody who carries any kind of leadership responsibility in their lives. And that includes fathers and mothers. If you're a father or a mother, you're carrying leadership in a home. If you're at work or at school or 
or wherever, even in the church, where if you have any level of leadership, what Peter shares with the elders is relevant to us all. In this brief paragraph, he's addressing the elders, and he, and he says, he uses the same verb that Jesus had used when he'd been talking to Peter after his resurrection on the beach there, when he said, you know, tend my sheep. Tend my sheep. Well, that's cool. That's good. That's, that tells us that he wants Peter to be involved. This is the same Peter who had boasted, the same Peter who had boasted to Jesus at what we call the Last Supper. That even if I have to die for you, I won't deny you. And then what did he do that night? He denied Jesus three times. Humiliation the night of Jesus' trials. And then it was the same Peter who Jesus found at the beach and said, do you love me? And asked him that three times. And every time Peter said yes, Jesus said, tend my sheep, tend my sheep, tend my sheep. And then it was the same Peter who became the obvious leader of the 12 disciples and was so bold with the gospel, the same guy who denied Jesus three times ended up being so bold proclaiming the gospel that he was flogged by the authorities because of his boldness. Isn't that incredible? This, this guy, that's who's writing this book. A brash and boastful man, then a humiliated man, then a restored man, then a bold man. And how does he address him? He talks, he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. He didn't pull rank on them. He didn't play the big guy on campus. He just says, hey, I'm just a fellow elder. This is a man who'd been humbled. And he was speaking out of humility, which is really important for what he has, the message we see later, because obviously we see later when he's speaking to everyone, back in verse 6 there, he's talking about humbling yourselves. He says, humble yourselves, therefore. Well, Peter was speaking from experience. He'd been humbled. He'd been humbled. He thought he could do it, but he couldn't. How many of you have ever been there? You thought you could do it, but you couldn't. That's how I felt in Sudan. Well, anyway, that's the Peter who's writing this letter. He, he says, a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I wonder when I read that, I wondered, why didn't he say a witness of the resurrection? Why didn't he say a witness of the ascension when Jesus went up to heaven? He could have said those things. He witnessed those things. Do you think he actually witnessed the sufferings of Christ? I'm not actually sure he did. Where was he when Jesus was crucified? It says he went and wept because he denied Jesus three times. I don't know where he was. I think he was in hiding. And yet here... He says, I'm a, par- I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He's drawing attention to the very night of his humiliation. He's drawing attention to that night in which he was humbled. And he's saying, as a fellow elder among you, I'm just one of you guys. I'm just like you. I'm just flesh and blood. And that's true of all of us as elders. We're all, we're all, it's not like we're something special just because I'm an elder. All of you guys in all of us, we're all flesh and blood. We all need Jesus in the same way. We're all desperately needy for a Savior. But then, look at what Peter does. 
Peter refers to, he, he says, he has a sure hope for how everything will end. He says, he declares that he will be a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. That's what he talks about now. He's, yeah, sure, I blew it that night, but I'm still going to be a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. And it's not going to be my glory, because I don't deserve any glory. I messed up. It's going to be his glory, and I'm going to share in it. Because he shares his glory with the humble. He doesn't share his glory with the proud. And Jesus prepared him to receive glory by the humbling that, he went, that, that Peter went through. How many of us are fixated on our failures? Hmm? How many of us get distracted by our failures when you blow it? How many of us rehearse them, play them over in our heads? Am I, am I the only one in the room that does that? I, I do that. I get really distracted. I lose sleep sometimes over it. Sometimes I call some of you guys up on the phone and say, Hey, by the way, I think I really blew it when I was over at your house tonight. Like, and most of you go, what? What are you talking about? That, there's no problem. Like, why are you calling me? Because I thought I blew it. Oh, Ken, get a, get a, get a hold of yourself, man. Like, it's not that bad. Well, I get fixated on my failures. And I wonder how God's going to receive me. In those moments when I'm fixated on my failure, I wonder, is God going to be smiling when he sees me? Or is he going to be frowning? Or is he going to have this slight look of concern on his face when he sees Ken Peters? Well, Peter's telling us, hey, you can be convinced of your full acceptance before God. That's what he's talking about here, even though Peter blew it. You know, I actually did quit in Sudan. Two days after getting that letter that I read you a portion of there. Two days later. I got that letter. Did that sound encouraging, that letter? You know, remain to the end and all that jazz. And then I quit two days later. Why? Well, I don't know if it was that day or the next day, but I got into a major fight with somebody on my team. Like, you know, it was stressful. We were living in a desert, okay? And I was, I was on a sort of some kind of meager diet. And, and, but I can't blame all that because... Because nobody else was getting in fights with everybody else on the team. I was getting in fights with everyone on the team. I got in a fight with somebody and I thought, okay, this is enough. I need a break. I'd been in the desert for nine months without a holiday. And I said, I need a holiday. Well, my team leader heartily agreed because it would get rid of me. And so he says, yeah, go, go, go have a holiday. So I left. Then on the way to Khartoum, and we're talking a roadless desert here. We're talking about like, like just no maps. Just a roadless desert, and we had a driver, one of our team members, a Sudanese guy who, who knew the, how to drive the deserts. He was driving us to Khartoum. And I got into a major fight with him on the way to Khartoum. And it was so bad. When he saw an approaching lorry, like a big truck, coming our way, he stopped the Land Rover and got out, and was going to get in that lorry and go back to the village and leave us stranded in the middle of a roadless desert. And there were other people. It wasn't just me that would have been stranded. There were other people that were like, Ken, talk to the guy. Like, apologize for crying out loud. Like, do something. Because we were all going to die if, if he left us. So I went and talked to him. We persuaded. We all begged him. This is all in my journal. I could have brought my journal and just read you depressing entry after depressing entry. And it was like, we begged him not to go. And... uh he changed his mind. He got back in the car and we drove. And I decided, as we continued to Khartoum, I decided, I'm going to quit. That's it. 
I'm a liability on this team. I, I cannot subject these people to who I am any longer. And so I went into the director's office in Khartoum, and I resigned. And I expected him to be in hearty agreement with me because he knew the problem I'd been on the team. It was no secret. He knew all about my behavior. And he said, Ken, let's finish this conversation after you've taken a holiday. Go. Go to, go to Kenya or something. Go Take a holiday. That was when I went and visited Lance Nelson in Kenya in 1987. So, ah, I thought, wow, this guy was kind. How caring was this guy? He received me with grace. He received me with kindness. He gave me hope for how this could end, which is exactly how God wants to receive those who follow Jesus. When we're thinking we're just a piece of work that God can't use, he says, look, you may be giving up on yourself, but I haven't given up on you. Let's get to work. Let's, let's, let's press on. So don't let your mistakes in your past define who you are. Because you, if you know Jesus, Peter wanted his readers to know that they were a new creation. If you don't know Jesus, you can become a new person today. You can have a new start, a fresh new start. There's a verse in Galatians that says, I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's the new creation we are. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold! The new has come. Is that cool? Well, that's how Peter wanted the people thinking. So... We can be absolutely convinced when we humble ourselves and recognize we need a Savior. When we humble ourselves and recognize we can't do this without Jesus, then He allows us to become partakers in the glory that's to come. And we can be sure how this is going to end. We will be received. He will send us help today. Today. Not just when we get to heaven. That's the heart posture that Peter was exemplifying as he told them to be being examples to the flock. You know, he was, he'd been already told by Jesus, tend my sheep. And now he's telling other elders, now you do, you do the same. You tend the sheep too and take care of the flock of God. Remember, he says the flock of God. You're not my sheep. I may be, you know, involved in tending a a flock here, but you're God's sheep. And God has given me a role to help you, to tend to you. And you may be in a leadership position somewhere else, or you have the opportunity to show a little pastoral care in a leadership role that you have, whether as a mom or a dad or at work or school. I think it's interesting that Peter even included this section on elders. And I think part of the reason he did is because as these people were suffering, as these people were being so tried, he knew that leadership is important at times like that. Leadership's important. And so he was stressing the importance of that. But Peter didn't concern himself just with duties. What is the elder supposed to do? He talked mainly about how. He talked about the how. 
and he talked about willingness and selflessness and humility. Look at verses 2 to 3. He talked, he says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not shameful gain for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering, but being examples. That's an example in a positive terms of willingness, selflessness, and humility. And that's how we're all meant to lead in whatever capacity, whatever context we lead in. Picture Peter. you got to picture, this is a real-life situation. Peter's writing this down. Let me just sit over here. I've always wanted to use this chair through the whole series. Peter's sitting at his desk, and he's writing, and he, and he, he thinks, you know, telling the elders to be examples, and he thinks, oh, there was a time where Jesus told us to follow his example. Oh, and it was a memorable night. He remembers it well. And this is when Jesus said, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. This is Jesus talking at the Last Supper. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater? The one who's at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I'm among you as one who serves. That was the same night Jesus washed his disciples' feet and said, do as I've done to you. Follow my example. Now he's telling these elders to follow an example. I'm sure that Peter's mind wandered to that night as he was writing. And he wouldn't have written with regret because he knew Jesus had forgiven him about those denials. In fact, when he starts talking about being clothed with humility. Wow. Where is... I think I'm getting ahead of myself here. Yeah, I'm going to come back to that later. When he talks about leading like Jesus, he talked about not doing it for whatever gain. You can get out of it. And then he wrote in his letter to the, the exiles of the dispersion, not so that you can lord it over others. And, and no, lead in a way that sets an example for the flock, just like Jesus did. He was remembering back to that Lord's Supper as he wrote these exhortations to the elders to lead in that way. And these words guide me as a leader in this church. And they guide all of us as elders. And I hope they'll guide all of us in whatever leadership capacity any of you are in. So, before Peter turns his attention to everyone again, he speaks to a specific group. You decide whether you're a part of this group or not. He says, to those who are younger. I'm not sure who he meant. I'm not sure in that culture who would have been considered younger. Younger than what? I don't know. But the term he used, some translations use the word young men. And that's not a correct translation. The word used there is a generic term that can be used for men. It's kind of like our word guys. Hey, guys. And he was talking to the young people in the mid, their midst. And he said, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And then he talks about, you know, that being an expression of humility. Well, that can be uncomfortable in our culture. And I just, want to, I just want to kind of lighten that a little bit. There's a verse in Ephesians where Jesus says, Wives, submit to your husbands. 
And that can be a little threatening in our culture. I've done premarital counseling, and sometimes that can get a little awkward if I'm doing marriage counseling for somebody who's not doesn't have a church background. But when we talk about the fact that God calls husbands to love their wives like Christ loved the church, that's, that's an expression of loving our lives by loving our wives by laying our lives down for them. And when God is encouraging a husband to lay his life down for his wife, it should make it easier for her to feel safe to submit. And I think the same thing is true here. While the younger people are being encouraged to be subject to their elders, the elders are being encouraged to lay down their lives for the sheep and others to follow Christ's example as the chief shepherd. So we don't have to be uncomfortable with these words. But basically what it says is that the humility that Peter has been speaking about is mutual. It's for everyone to embrace. And that's why he goes on to say, humble yourselves, all of you. He says, he says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to others, close yourselves with humility toward one another. God opposes the problem, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore. He keeps using this word humble, humble, humble. It's a big deal. And that's because this is how God prepares us for glory. I wonder if I can be honest with you guys for a second. I mean, not that I haven't been already. But I mean a new level of honesty that occurred to me as I was reading my notes just now. I was off for a year in 2016. Heart surgery and all that jazz. And I didn't know how long it was going to be. At first I just thought it was going to be a couple months. I didn't know how serious it was. My doctor wasn't being completely up front with me. And gradually it became clear how long it was going to take. So, once I realized how long it was going to take, I thought, I need to make the most of this. I need to, I don't want to waste this time. I couldn't do much because anything I did, even conversations with people on the phone, would cause pain in my chest. So I had to be very wise what I took on. So I read a lot of books. And I, was, I asked the Lord to put books in my hands to tell me what to read. And I, I ended up going on a major spiritual retreat, despite the fact that I was disabled, despite the fact that I was on a lot of meds, despite the fact that I had to have surgery, God used that year to do heart surgery on me, spiritual heart surgery. And quite honestly, I believe that that year was the discipline of the Lord for me. I had been leading in this church in a way that was looking for glory. It meant a lot to me to get it right. There was a lot at stake if I failed. Too much at stake. I don't know if you can relate to that, where you feel like if you fail, your identity is at stake. But that's what I was wrestling with. And as I worked through this material, and I wasn't just reading, I was journaling as I was reading, and as I worked through this material, God started plumbing the depths. And by the time I got back, I realized, I don't even know exactly how it happened, I realized there's less at stake now. I feel like there's less at stake. I'm not looking for glory like I once was. I mean, I have my moments where I feel insecure and I want to be thought well of. We can probably all relate to that. But there was less at stake. It's not like I felt like my identity was at stake if I failed. I could get on with my day if I failed. And that's what God wants. Because if he's going to share his glory with us, 
which is what he talks about here. That's why he emphasizes humility in this passage so much while talking about being partakers of the glory. I don't know if you know, like, do you know what that means? Being a partaker in the glory of God? What does that mean? I don't deserve any of God's glory. Keep it for yourself, Lord. I I don't, but he wants to share it with us, but he can only share it with us if there's humility in our hearts. Do you see what I'm saying? Am I making sense? So if God is doing something in your life that's causing, well, that's having a humbling effect on you, embrace it. I'm still embracing it. It's not like, oh, <laughs> I've arrived now. I can tell you all about this. No, I, it's still, I'm still in process. But I'm moving in the right direction. And so that when I get to heaven, I want God to feel very free to share his glory. Because I'll know it's not my glory. It's still his glory. And I just get to revel in it. That's what he wants for these people who are suffering. He wants them to experience that. He talks about being clothed with humility. What does that look like? Well, as Peter was writing, where does his mind go? As he used these words, clothed with humility. Well, listen to what Jesus did at that last supper. The same night he'd been imagining earlier, or potentially imagining, he, during supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, wrapped it around his waist, and he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. That's the clothing of humility. And he said, I set you an example, so you should also do this. So this is the kind of humility he wants us walking in. Jesus had modeled it. Peter was remembering it as he talked about being clothed with humility. For me, years ago, it looked like a completely different set of clothes. I, uh, I was pretty naive back in my early 20s, and I made the mistake of washing my car during a cold snap. And I was working at Rhymer Express in those days, wearing clothes kind of like this. And so I came downstairs to go to work. I didn't, my car was parked outside. I didn't have a heated garage. It was a, an apartment building. And my car was a, an ice cube. Like you could see the ice just covering the, the lock and the door, the handles. I could not get in. And I thought, what am I going to do? Like I'm dressed for an office. I don't know how to figure this out. And you know how when it gets so cold in Winnipeg, it's kind of like this. There's just this ice mist in the air. And I'm just wondering what to do. I remember being just feeling defeated. And suddenly this shape comes through the mist. Like Clint Eastwood in some desert town coming out of the dust. And he says, Problem, Ken? It was my friend James. And he was wearing complete full-length coveralls. He looked toasty warm. These, for James, were the clothes of humility. He didn't have to be outside. I don't even know why he was outside. I think what happened was, just thinking about it between services. There was a 7-Eleven right across the street. And he was probably parked at 7-Eleven, getting himself a cup of coffee. And he saw this, this really smart guy across the street who's standing beside his car, staring, not knowing what to do. And so he came walking over. And he says, Ken, I'll tell you what to do. And he told me what to do. He sent me upstairs for some stuff. I came back down. We, we, I don't know what we did. I can't even remember. But we got in. Heaving on the hatch, got into the lock on the back, and 
At the time, it's only dawned on me today that he was probably at 7-Eleven. At the time, I thought, where did you come from? Why were you wandering out in the cold? But it was the humility of wanting to serve. He came to serve. He, he didn't have to. But he came to serve in the bitter cold. And you've got to ask yourself, what, is the, what do the clothes of humility look like for you? What's, what's God calling you to? Where is God calling you to lay aside what's comfortable and what, what, what just seems good for you? And put on clothes that's, that allow you to serve others. What's that going to look like for you? I, could, I can't tell you. What's it going to look like for me? From one day to the next. Well, that's the humility. That's the humility we're being called to. But he calls, he says, humble yourselves where? Under the mighty hand of God. This must have been a great comfort. And then it it speaks of God's overruling power in this suffering that these people were facing. If there's a mighty hand of God, I don't have to stress about all this suffering. I don't have to try to care for myself. I can can care for others. I can take my eyes off myself, put my eyes onto God, and, and, and then let him direct me, direct my attention to the people around me that he wants me to serve. But as long as I'm trying to care for myself. And, but no, he says, God's going to take care of you. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. He will care for us so that we can care for others. Do you know that's the reason? If God's caring for you, all I'm asking here is that you realize it's not just supposed to end there. He cares for us so that we can be less distracted about caring for ourselves and then we can care for others. Well, as Peter gets to the end of the book here, he brings up a whole new subject. And he talks about the spiritual warfare we're in. He says, be sober-minded and watchful. In other words, be spiritually alert. Uh, Which is a big deal. Because being spiritually alert just means, you know, not being... Careless, spiritually careless or spiritually lazy, being watchful so that we're not behaving or responding to things the same way an unbeliever would respond. And, and he says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by others throughout the world. Resist him. Firm in your faith. How do you resist the devil? The devil's strong. He's stronger than any of us, but he's not stronger than Jesus. So Peter says, put your faith in someone bigger than yourself. You can resist the devil when your faith is in Jesus. Now, one of the ways I do this, one of the ways I resist the devil, firm in my faith, is by using what Ron McLean taught me a long time ago, our silver bullets, meaning Memory verses that I use that apply specifically to my area of vulnerability. Where, where's my area of vulnerability? Well, my area of vulnerability happens to be believing God. Maybe that's something that's common to man, right? All of us struggle with that. But for 25 or I don't even know how many years, Fiona had a kidney disease that was getting worse and worse and worse. It was a life-threatening kidney disease. And you guys, I didn't handle that famously. I handled that badly at times. I, I complained. I got offended with God. And, and 
when I came to my senses, I, it felt like God was saying, start memorizing Scripture so you can fight the fight of faith. So I started measuring, memorizing Scriptures about faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. That's what we're asked to believe, that God is who He says He is and that He rewards those who believe Him. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in what? In believing. When you believe God is who He says He is and that all His promises are true, it fills you with joy and peace. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Well, I want to abound in hope in the midst of my suffering. I'm not saying, hey God, take all this suffering away. I'm saying even in the midst of the suffering, you can abound in hope if you're believing God is who he says he is and that all his promises are true. Amen? Psalm 9 verse 10 says, And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you... O Lord, Yahweh, do not forsake those who seek you. That's what I believe about God. And so as I memorized verses like these, I found myself fighting the fight of faith instead of going down the tubes. And my focus was on God instead of on me. And that is what God is calling us to. So what is the verse that you could memorize? Is there an area of vulnerability in your life where you could ask the Lord, Lord, give me a verse to memorize? Sometimes I talk about this and people say to me, I can't memorize. But you know what my answer is? Yes, you can. Yeah, you can. You've got lots of things memorized. There's lots of things in your head that you've got memorized. And those who can memorize simply make the effort to do so. So if you find, if you ask the Lord for one verse to memorize, I believe he'll give you the grace to memorize it. And then you can rehearse it back to the Lord. So, I think I'm going to end with this last part where it says, And the God of all grace, verse 10, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. To him be the dominion. There's a verse in Psalm 103 that says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and he rules over all. Does all include your life? It does. He rules over whatever you're going through. There's another verse that says, it says, Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. That means the devil can't stop God from doing what he pleases in your life. And God is up to doing good in your life. So let's believe these things about God. That God has dominion. And when he talks about restoring, confirming, and strengthening and establishing you, all he's doing there is piling on the promises. These are for you. This is what I want to do for you. I want to... I want to restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. And all I ask is that you humble yourself. Oh, God, help me to just put my eyes on you and take my eyes off myself and to not be focused on my troubles, but be focused on the mighty God who has dominion over all things. Lord, help me to see you for who you are.
Help me to believe your promises are true. And not to doubt your promises when circumstances don't seem to line up. Lord, I don't understand everything. I don't have all wisdom. You know what you're up to in my life and what you're trying to accomplish and how you're trying to bring greater humility to my heart. So, Lord, I receive your work in my life. I pray that you'd be at work in all of my friends to bring greater humility, to, 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 to be at work, to teach them to depend more and more on you so that whatever they're going through, they'll abound in hope because they'll be believing you are who you say you are and all your promises are true. Would you restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish my friends? In Jesus' name, amen.